Welcome to the Ask Your Mentor podcast from Dementia Researcher and Alzheimer's Research UK, where mentees interview their mentors to hear about their careers, experiences, and to find out what makes them tick. Hello, and welcome to the second show in the series of the Ask Your Mentor podcast. I'm Rebecca Williams. I'm a PhD student at the Cognition and Brain Sciences Unit in Cambridge. And I specialise in frontotemporal dementia. Uh, but today I'm swapping my usual mentoring session and turning the spotlight onto the career of my brilliant mentor, Dr. Martina Bacchetta, who is not only a lecturer uh, in the Centre for Cognitive and Clinical Neuroscience of the Department of Psychology at Brunel University in London, but has also generously given up her time um, to help me out in my studies. So Martina and I were matched through the Alzheimer's Research UK Mentoring Programme, which is a fantastic free scheme, um, helping early career researchers to grow their skills, hopefully make better decisions and gain new perspectives on their career. Uh, So today it's not about me and my career, but all about Martina and hers. So I'd like to offer a very warm welcome to my incredible guest and mentor, Dr. Martina Paquetta. Hi, Rebecca. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And hello, everyone who is either listening or watching us today. Yeah, thank you very much for taking the time to be here. You're more than welcome. (laughs) So these shows are all about recognising that there's no such thing as a standard career path. So we start each one by asking our mentors to take us through their CV, just like you would in a job interview, but hopefully without any of the really difficult questions. (laughs) So we're going to start by going through each role and discuss career moves, how these came about, um, some of the thought processes maybe that were going on at the time, as well as achievements and lessons to take away from each role. So Martina. I'm going to paint the scene for you. It's 2012. Uh, Shinya Yamanaka has just won the Nobel Prize for his discovery of induced pluripotent stem cells. Barack Obama has just won a second term. And you move from Padua to Brescia ahead of your PhD. So let's dive straight into the good stuff. Um, Did you know at that stage what you wanted to do with your life? So, so first of all, um, same level of importance like Nobel Prize and Barack Obama and me moving to, to Russia, like it was all over the news and very important um, um, happening. But anyway, um, so at the time, um, to be honest with you, I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, I only um, knew that I was about to embark an opportunity of doing a PhD. And I didn't really knew what that meant. I thought, oh, it's going to be um, study something for three years, which is great. Um, I'm up for studying. I'm up for learning. But I didn't quite realize what was the difference between, you know, working and doing um, a project as perhaps as a research assistant, which is what I was doing um, before, and actually leading on a project and doing something um, that was mine and new skills to develop. And so absolutely no idea. So did you enjoy that shift, like you say, kind of taking charge of a project? Was your PhD something that you enjoyed doing? Were there any challenges? Um, It was um, something that now that few years have passed, I would probably have done differently. Um, But I I thought it was an amazing experience and a great opportunity. So the the thing that I could study and really develop what was um, my very own area of um, research, I think was just a great opportunity. 
And on top of that, um, I had the amazing chance of coming to UCL, University College London in the UK, as a visiting student. So that really opened a um, few doors and um, the chance of exploring a new country and um, learning what um, someone else was doing in a very important centers um, was just fantastic. Yeah, so you mentioned this idea of kind of ideas being yours for the first time. I think it's a lot of um, things PhD um, students experience is trying to settle on that one idea to pursue one or two. So how did you kind of go about that process of deciding what you wanted your PhD to be focused on now that you had that control? So you kind of start from billions of different ideas and then you want to do everything. And then when you talk to your supervisor or to your kind of senior colleague, then they were like, mm, it's too much. You need to narrow it down. No, but I think I can do everything. No, really, trust me. So it's some sort of um, listening to um, people who are supervising you, your mentor or um, people who have definitely more experience than you and um, try to, well, it's going to be about trials and error anyway, because many of us are really stubborn. So I did went on doing a number of things and then, you know, some ended up not being exactly um, finishing stuff. Um, but um, it's sort of, trying and, um, you know, writing down this idea, then checking um, with others, getting as many feedbacks as possible and discussing with others. Yeah, great. And like I said, I remember reading a paper called It's a PhD, Not a Nobel Prize, which was really helpful. And, you know, just one of the benefits of having a mentor through the Alzheimer's Research UK mentoring scheme is that extra source of feedback. Um, so you mentioned that then during your PhD, you made that jump to London as a visiting student. So what prompted the move? Kind of how was it difficult settling into a new country? So um, at that time, ages ago, um, we were in Brescia. We were one of the recruiting center of a project that was just starting. And this project is uh, the Genetic Frontotemporal Initiative led by Professor Jonathan Rohr at UCL. And um, thanks to this collaboration, there was this idea of, well, you know, you can come to the leading centers of the project and just, you know, start talking and learning a little bit more about frontotemporal dementia and, you know, spend 12 months with us. So I said, of course, I'm going to do that. Um, so it was supposed to be 12 months. Um, I fell in love with the place so and with the group and with everything that was happening in Queen Square. So the 12 months became 18. <laughs> and I had to eventually go back to finish the PhD. Um, and it was just fantastic. So the opportunity to meet with other people and see how things are done in different groups um, was really um, eye-opening and uh, just a great opportunity. Um, I was so motivating and so enthusiastic that I didn't really feel like the difference or was not anything um, horrible or, um, you know, something that um, um, made me regret my choice. Um, if I really have to think about it, um, the only thing that was sort of a shock was the very first time that I went to a supermarket, just landed in the UK, and I found pasta in a tin. And that's, <laughs> that's a bit too much. I need to adjust to this. 
apart from that, I'm surviving. It's nearly nine years now that I'm in the UK. So I think I'm managing all right. <laughs> I love that. Biggest shock to the system, pastor in a tin. I don't think any of us can get over that. <laughs> so you, you went back to, to Brescia, completed your PhD, and, and that's kind of it. You're on this academic path. So can you take us through what, what happened next? Yeah. So um, when, when I was um, about to finish and kind of writing up, um, they actually offered me a permanent position in Italy, but um, I really wanted to um, go back to the UK because I felt like there was so much more that um, I wanted to learn and so many more opportunity. And I felt like the um, group and the initiative and the project, it was um I, I mean, I had, I felt like I had to um, be part of that and everything was starting there. And I said, I really want to, um, to be there. So I had a conversation with um, uh, my great supervisor um, at UCL and I said, oh, you know, can I go back? Do you think there may be, there be opportunity or something for me to kind of join the group as a postdoc? And they said, oh, maybe, you know, you can think about writing a fellowship, but they might have some opportunities. So I did write fellowship. I did write three of them. None of them got funded. Yay. Um, but um, I, there was an opening position, so I applied and um, thankfully I managed to get um, this post. So I was two years as a postdoc um, in the group there. And um, yeah, so one of the things then that happened was I did apply it again in 2019, if I remember well, um, to another fellowship um, and I did get it, um, which was great. And um, if I look back and I think about the reason why I got three unsuccessful fellowship, I think that that was okay. I wasn't ready. The project wasn't ready. And the fact that I had two years to really um, improve my skills and um, learn more, publish more, and really develop um, my own career path, that helped a lot in terms of then getting a successful fellowship. Yeah, that's really interesting, this idea of kind of that sometimes you've got to fail in order to succeed. I think it's a common problem that we have in academia is this idea of when to apply to things. I think some people never feel ready, but you don't want to apply too soon. Have you any advice for people kind of just coming out of their PhD on if they're kind of on the fence about applying to a fellowship? Would you recommend they go for it even if they might not have the experience or to wait it out in a different role? Um, I think it really depends. Um, it depends on the type of project, what is considering hot topic um, in terms of, you know, funding schemes. And um, it's also a matter of um, the groups you are um, approaching or where you want to move or um, with whom you are planning to, um, you know, uh, do the project um, you are considering for the fellowship. And unfortunately, it's also a matter of luck. So sometimes, you know, um, there are several rounds um, of grants during the year for a number of um, uh, charities or funders. And sometimes you just get maybe too many fantastic applications and you are unlucky because you are like number four and they're only able to fund three. 
maybe if you apply just six months after or six months before, then, you know, no one else is applying and uh, you get a better chance. So sometimes we, we need to remember that um, it's also a matter of luck and not just skills. So I feel like, um, first of all, if you don't apply, you don't get. So that's number one rule. So um, you, you, cannot, um, you cannot get a fellowship or um, a studentship um, if you don't apply. But it's also good to remember that um, the more you work on the application, the more feedback you get, um, the more you improve your writing skills. So I think as soon as you have an idea and um, you have a project in mind, I think it's good to start writing and um, get feedback. And then when you feel um, you are ready, just submitting it. Yeah, a kind of common theme of across the kind of career spectrum is don't be afraid to show your work to other people because that feedback can be a really critical part of, of success. Um, so I guess the obvious next question is, so your successful fellowship, what was it about? What was your research on and what is it on today? So um, the fellowship is um, funded by Alzheimer's Society, which is an amazing um, charity. I also think, think like um, it was destiny that I was um, that I was funded by them. I am um, I feel like they are the perfect um, funders for what I want to do and my research. Um, they are really um, keen in um, bringing sort of um, the side of research together with um, people living with dementia or their carers. So there is this very um, um, strong link between what research with what researchers do and what um, you know what it, what it really means living with dementia. Um, and I feel like I'm learning a lot by um, by having this sort of um, this opportunity to um, work closely with um, with monitors and um, volunteers within the Alzheimer's Society. So the project is about um, trying and to identify markers in the brain um, in uh, genetic forms of temporal dementia. So what I do is uh, using MRI um, brain scans. And I look at very small areas of the brain and I see um, and I try to identify whether there are changes and how uh, big these changes are, how fast these changes are happening, um, how they can characterize um, the different forms of um, frontotemporal dementia and how they are linked with the um, development of the symptoms. With the overall idea that um, perhaps I could contribute um, to um, having a better understanding of um, what's happening in the brain in frontal dementia, probably um, helping with a marker for um, clinical trials and for um, diagnosis and prognosis in a way. That's, that's really interesting. And is that something that you anticipate will continue indefinitely? What comes kind of in the next five years, do you think? Will you continue with the biomarkers with MRI or are you going to see research branching out a little bit? Oh, that's a very job interview um, question. <laughs> Where do you see yourself in five years? In five years time. <laughs> um, uh, so I feel like at some point uh, it would be good to have um, treatment and work more on treatment. Um, and by treatment, I mean either drug that works and hopefully slow down and hold the um, um, symptoms of dementia, but also working on um, sort of um, neuropsychological rehabilitation or um, support for people currently living with dementia. So we always hope that, uh, you know, in five years, we do have a drug that actually works for everyone. 
And um, my plan is um, to try and um, identify changes that we can see at the level of the single person. So being able, hopefully, one day to say, okay, this is the person um, we need to have really targeted and personalized um, therapeutic intervention or psychological rehabilitation intervention to this specific um, person. So this is where I'm aiming for the next um, five years. Maybe 10. <laughs> maybe 10, maybe longer. <laughs> oh, amazing. No, that's really interesting to hear. And, and it's obvious you're really kind of passionate and, and enthusiastic about what you do, which is always really nice to see. What do you think kind of motivates you through when, you know, the MRI isn't scanning properly or the analysis code isn't working? What's your kind of motivation behind your research? Yeah, spending hours looking at things and then the script is not working or I cannot find anything. Um, I think what really drives me are, well, the curiosity of um, trying to crack a question and try to hunt for an answer, um, which is kind of curiosity in science overall. Um, but also the feeling that, you know, um, we are a group of people working together at the very end to try and um, solve a big problem, which is dementia. And I know I won't save the world, but... I've been trained and I've studied and I, and I have a little bit of knowledge and I really want to convey and help as much as I can with what I'm able to do in order to, you know, help in this quest for finding a cure for dementia. So this is kind of what really drives me. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the truth for a lot of us, right, is this idea of individually we might not be able to solve any big problems, but collectively as a group, it's amazing to see how far the field of dementia has come, even the last, you know, five, ten years. Um, so what do you think are some of the kind of day-to-day -day challenges that you face that a budding dementia researcher should be aware of? Um, fundings. <laughs> <laughs> Being able to um, get project approved and get um, fundings to um, do the research we want to do. Um, then there is lots of um, sort of... Um, diplomacy and trying to get people to work together, um, which sometimes is difficult. And um, getting, um, trying to have an idea or trying to have a project or trying to have a research that we really have an impact on people living with dementia. So, you know, sometimes it's amazing looking at brain scans, sometimes it's great. Um, running analysis um but at the end of the day is trying of why like re reminding ourselves why we are really doing that um i think that's what should kind of be the end point and kind of okay let's let's reconvey and why are we doing this sort of rather than just doing research for the for the for the fun of doing research yeah, I think it's always interesting when you ask researchers kind of what the biggest challenges they face are. It's very rarely the research itself, but rather kind of everything around it, like you say, of the funding of kind of the interpersonal collaborations and communication um, and, and keeping sight of that kind of bigger, bigger picture. Um, so I, I guess my last question after this lovely romp through through your CV is looking back. Is there anything that you'd change? So many things. <laughs> <laughs> it's well, just me and you <laughs> no no one is listening to this no no um, so um a number of things but it's always easy when you look back and you know how things have gone and sort of oh I should have done that so it's always kind of easy um looking back and said oh I'll change this and that 
Um, probably I would be more vocal and I would be more um, sort of asking for things. Um, and I would have do much more networking early on. Sometimes I felt like, you know, I'm just a research assistant. I cannot go and talk to professor or to, you know, uh, because I'm a no one. And then I felt like I lost opportunity and I feel like people are always really happy to talk about um, their research and, um, and sharing what they know. So probably I would have started networking much earlier. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. It's definitely something that's difficult to do when you're on your own, especially at a conference. Um, I always refer to it as being like a debutante in the period drama. I always feel like I need someone to come and help introduce me to all these people I don't know. But yeah, having that confidence to kind of go up to people and say, hey, like, I really love your research. Um, I think it's, it's really awesome. And obviously now not only are you a researcher, but you're also a lecturer teaching other people um, about the subject. So what, what part of kind of your job now most excites you kind of with that teaching component built in? Um, so I really love teaching. I, something that I always kind of have there at the back of my mind and um, on a side, I kind of train and um, I've, um, I've been awarded the fellowship from the Higher um, Education Academy in the UK because I wanted to kind of, thank you, I wanted to have this sort of um, training and really approach teaching with, um, you know, a, a proper foundation, not just, oh, I'll just go and teach something. So knowing how to do it, knowing the different um, approaches and techniques. Um, so... It's fun now because I have, I'm teaching now at the undergraduate level of psychology and um, kind of remind me when I was much younger and sort of, um, I'm, I'm trying to be someone that I wish I had um, when I was younger. Um, and it's fun to try and convey things that now I know because of, it's been X amount of years uh, that I study things, but um, it's kind of encountering some concepts for the very first time and trying to make it fun and trying to at least share a bit of the passion and um, the joy of doing um, research and talking about dementia and talking about the brain and talking about cognition. So that's fun, trying to prepare the lectures and um, having that at the back of my mind. Yeah, I think it's always a really strong motivation for me and the little teaching that I've done, like you say, is, is being that role model that I wish I had when, when I was younger. So I think there's, there's no greater motivation than that for teaching, is there? Um, so now that we know about your career from your early PhD work all the way up to teaching you do now, um, it's time to get some speedy career and life tips from Dr. Martina Baquetta. So in this part of the show, we're going to have some quick fire career questions, short, snappy answers. Martina, are you ready? Yeah, put my headphone on, ready. <laughs> <laughs> All right. What's one thing you wish someone had told you when you were at the career stage that I am currently? Believe in yourself, network as much as you can and um, talk to people. Yes talk to people all the time I don't I'm quite introverted myself I often find that difficult <laughs> what habits have you found to help you to be more productive making list um making list with sub list and then just pick uh, when you finish a task so even if you've done a little um at the end of the day you will have a couple of ticks and that will feel like you progressed and I feel like also planning um and planning for plan B, C, D, and Z, it's also helpful. 
I love that. List within list within lists is how I'm surviving through my PhD so far. Um, are there any good books or podcasts you can suggest to help listeners thinking about their career? Other than this one, obviously. Obviously, Dementia Research. I don't know if you heard about Dementia Research. I don't know. But no. yeah, they, they kind of do some podcasts in the field. Um, I wouldn't know in terms of books, um, but um, there are a couple of podcasts. Um, I think one is called The Curious Case of Rutherford and Fry, and one is um, The Infinite Monkey Cage. They are not necessary on um, neuroscience research or dementia research, but the way they explain science in a very lay way, in a very kind of um, enthusiastic and engaging things, I think it's helpful because at the end of the day, either you are presenting your research or writing a grant, you want to tell a story. So learning some of the things that you enjoy there might be helpful for your research side of things. Yeah, I really like that. One of my favourite books is uh, Bad Science by Ben Goldegg, which is one of the first ones I think I read before I started my even my undergraduate degree. And they like say that uh, idea of kind of storytelling and being able to turn science into something um, kind of entertaining to get people's attention is, is a really great skill to have. Um, talking of skills, which leadership skills were the most difficult, do you think, for you to develop? Who? Um, being assertive, uh, definitely one and trying to improve my self-confidence. That's something mm. that, um, and it's very typical of women actually. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> any, any, any tips on how to do that or is it still something you're working through yourself? Still working on it, um, but at the end of the day, I feel like everyone is different and everyone has different um, skills and way to approach leadership. And there is not a style that fits for all. So it's kind of getting to know our um, weaknesses and our strengths and then work on them. And yeah, that's what, that what I'm, I'm trying to, to say, you know, I won't be good at doing this, this and that, but I'm actually capable of doing this. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. A bit of self-reflection and kind of, I think it's easy for you to amplify that voice in your head, which says, oh, you're not good at this and this. But like you say, kind of challenging that with, I might not be good at those things but I am good at these things. I think it's a really helpful way to think about it. Uh, we, we touched on this with your fellowships, but how do you deal with failure or rejection in your career? Badly. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, apart from, you know, the feeling of, oh my God, I'm not capable of doing anything. Um, it's kind of taking a step back, um, considering that it's not personal and um, rationalize it and then, try to use it as a learning opportunity. So there might be feedback. So another point is getting as much feedback as possible, even on failure or rejection, and use that to understand how you can improve the next move. Yeah, absolutely. I think, like you say, taking that step back. And whenever I've had something massive in my career or in life generally, I think looking out the window and seeing that the birds are still chirping and everyone else is still going about with their daily lives reminds you that the world has not ended um, and this too shall pass. <laughs> no, I just wanted to add, there is also another thing, which is we should all normalize failure because everyone, every single one of us um, encounters some failure from the big professor to the, you know, students is just, it's normal. And uh, we should talk more about that. So it's like publishing null results. I feel like you have to say, as well as when you did things well, sometimes like you say, normalizing that. Yeah, I put this in, but I got desk rejected. Oh, well, um, it's good generally for the academic community. Absolutely. 
Um, so we've mentioned already that being kind of assertive and that self-confidence might particularly be a problem in women in neuroscience. So what do you think it takes to be a successful woman in neuroscience as you are? Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> well, I think um, I think we should have very big shoulders, first of all. And I think the other thing that work should be having a big network or a good network of support among women. So women should support women. And um, I think that works for me. Yeah, absolutely. I say, I think it's seeing other women and what they're doing is a really great way to inspire and motivate me because there's just some amazing research going on at the minute. As we saw on International Women's Day when um, various organizations kind of sp put a spotlight on women in their in their society, it was, it was really great to see. Um, and what skills in general have been, do you think, most beneficial to you as a researcher? Um, organization and planning, um, then observing and listening. So one of the things is that, you know, you get opportunity to attend conferences or to listen to big names or amazing um, researchers, just follow them and uh, try to understand what you like about them and replicate what they are doing in a sense of understand what works for you and what you like to do. Um, and then probably empathy as well. Fantastic. Well, that's it. That was the last one. Um, so let me recap then on the main the main takeaways there. Uh, so I think generally, let me say we've covered these skills of listening being a really big part of our job, both in terms of empathizing with other researchers and other people, but also seeking out those role models, uh, listening out for other women or generally people in STEM who are doing work that you'd like to be doing and learning how to emulate those people, um, as well as listening out for feedback, be it on a success or on a failure or rejection to kind of um, help us improve in future and remind ourselves that the world does in fact move on. Um, I think we've seen the importance of mentors as well as supervisors um, in that in a big way. Um, so thank you very much, Martina, for all your wonderful little snippets of advice. Oh, thank you, Rebecca. And you summarize it much better than me. So amazing. <laughs> We're now in the last segment of the show. And to do before we finish, we just want to talk a little bit about mentoring itself. We've touched on it here and there, but this section is explicitly focused on that mentoring. So Martina, what is it that made you decide to be a mentor? And is there any advice that you'd give for anyone listening who doesn't have a mentor? As amazing as you. So um, I think if you don't have a mentor, get one. Um, this could be via a formal um, uh, initiative or by approaching someone that you consider um, a role model or someone um, who might be senior than you in your institute or even in your network um, or even someone that you find on Twitter. And um, it's really important and um, it really helps a lot. Um, and it helped me a lot as a mentee. And um, and it also helps me as a mentor because, you know, the opportunity of sharing the little bit um, I have and trying to imagine how I was a um, few years ago and what I needed at the time. And, you know, might not be um, may, might not made, make a huge difference, but the idea of normalizing and sh showing people that, you know, everyone is a different person and we need to identify what works for us. And there is not one thing that fits for all. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, a common thing that I've heard from mentors is I'm not sure if I'm making a, a difference. And in fact, there were statistics at this at the Alzheimer's Research UK conference 
um, of how many mentees thought that mentors had made a massive difference for them versus how many mentors thought they'd made a massive difference. And there was this huge discrepancy in the statistics. So I'd like to confirm, Martina, you have made a massive difference uh, to my oh. academic career, even if it doesn't feel like it. Um, you mentioned you've also, you've also been a mentee at times. So thinking like very practically, how do you prefer, prepare for a mentoring meeting, both now as a mentor, but also past, in past as a mentee? Um, as a mentee, I tend to, again, write down lists, um, very important, and try to imagine what I want to achieve in a year time, two years time, whatever it's my five years plan of the future, and um, understand what I think I need or how to get there and just ask for suggestion or even for ideas for networking or opportunities um, and asking that to uh, my mentor. Um, for a mentor or as a mentor, um, I think it's more about getting into the listening mode and um, just shut up. Not what I'm doing today, talking a lot. Um, but it's about really listening to the needs of the mentee and um, supporting um, where I can and sharing um, experience, similar experience that I might have um, go through. Yeah, fantastic. And, and is there anything you would say to people who might be on the fence about becoming a mentor um, to push them into becoming a mentor themselves? It's such a rewarding experience. Um, you get to um, talk to amazing um, people like you, Rebecca, and um, you get to um, you get to um, learn a lot from people. And it's um, it's kind of boosting your confidence um, and um, again probably go back in time and talking to the younger version of yourself and um, helping in a way to um, um, what what things have worked and things that may have not worked exactly um, and help someone else so it's very it's very good amazing so if you needed any inspiration or, or a note that you should go and get yourself a mentor or become a mentor yourself then this is it um, like martina said either through formal schemes like the alzheimer's research uk mentoring scheme or informally uh, through twitter or through people at work um, it can be a really rewarding experience from both sides of the equation um, so some very last questions that aren't mentor related these are the, the ones that i think where people are really going to want the answers for so if someone was playing you in a movie of your life, who would you want it to be and why? So, so mm, I have to think of someone, sort of, someone will kill me, um, awkward and funny, and I hope someone witty. So I might go for someone like Miranda Hart or Olivia Coleman. I hope they don't get offended. I really have huge respect for them, so... I, I think that's a great idea. I think that's an excellent combination. I can very much see Olivia Coleman uh, saying yes to that call. <laughs> um, and last one, if you couldn't be a researcher, what would you be instead? Ooh. So I personally think I couldn't be anything else. <laughs> Apart from that, I might go for sort of hospitality sector, cooking and hosting, like bed and breakfast or something. At the end of the day, I'm still Italian, so I have to go for that. <laughs> nice. I think a neuroscience-themed bed and breakfast could work really, really well in Italy. I, I, I've not researched it, but I'm pretty sure that is a niche that has not been tapped into yet. <laughs> Let's work on that. <laughs> Next mentoring meeting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, that's all we have time for today. I'd like to thank my amazing mentor and guest, Dr. Martina Piquetta, for joining us again. It's been absolutely fantastic. Thank you, Rebecca. Thank you so much for having me. And everyone, please try to become a mentor and um, trying to find a mentor if you need one. And if you'd like to find out more about Martina and her work, you'll find her and my bio on the Dementia Researcher website. So feel free to reach out if you have any questions. Thank you so much to Alzheimer's Research UK for bringing us together. I think hopefully we've shown throughout the course of this podcast um, just how much it means um, to have mentor and mentee relationships. Um, And the Ask Your Mentor podcast will be back soon with another mentee talking to their mentor. But for now, I'm off to go and plan my career based on all those amazing tips that Martina's just given. Us. I'm going to go write lists within lists within lists. Um, I'm Rebecca Williams, and you've been listening to the Ask the Mentor podcast from Dementia Researcher in association with Alzheimer's Research UK. Mm-hmm.